Oftentimes, if you ask just this generic question, well, have you ever been sexually harassed at work? A quarter of the uh, people will raise their hands. But then when you ask the question of, well, how many of you have experienced uh, some type of uh, sexual put down at work? Then you get 75% of the people, if not more, particularly the women, right, raising their hands. EEOC Commissioner Victoria Lipnick stops by to speak with me about sexual harassment and how we can create a culture of prevention in the workplace. Commissioner Lipnick, welcome okay. to Screen Management Highlights. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Chuck. Glad to be with you. Now, we're going to speak about creating a culture that prevents sexual harassment in the workplace. Tell us why corporate culture matters in these cases. Sure. Uh, well, that's a pretty big question to start off with, um, but the, probably the most important one, as you know, my uh, role at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, I've been commissioner for 10 years and uh, served as the acting chair for two and a half years, but uh, some of the most important work that I did was co-chair our uh, select task force on the study of harassment in the workplace. And uh, we published our report in 2016, June of 2016, which almost 30 years to the day that the Supreme Court had issued the first really landmark decision uh, that held that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination under the law, protected under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But we were particularly concerned at the EEOC at a leadership level, and I should say I got to the EEOC in 2010, and I have a background in labor and employment law, had done sexual harassment investigations in the course of my career, but I was pretty appalled uh, when I got to the EEOC at not just the number of harassment cases that we have and see, but just how egregious some of the factual circumstances were in so many of the situations that we would see. Long story short, uh, among the leadership at the EEOC, we were uh, pretty concerned about this issue. And this was something that, you know, we were seeing. It certainly looked to us like uh, it was pervasive, it certainly was persistent. So, you know, here we were many years after the 1986 Supreme Court decision and lots and lots of harassment training that taken place over the years. So that led to, at a leadership level at the EOC, we were looking for some way that we could uh, address this issue beyond what the EOC does as, you know, its bread and butter business, which is to uh, take in charges of discrimination and investigate them and make some finding and potentially litigate cases. We, we litigate a small portion of cases. So we were uh, concerned about the issue uh, and that led to the establishment of our select task force on harassment, which we uh, impaneled in 2015. I co-chaired that task force with my friend and really great colleague, uh, Commissioner uh, former Commissioner Highfeld Bloom. So we approached it as, look, we think there's a problem here. What can we do to prevent this from happening more in the workplace, in all the workplaces that we see? So that among many uh, recommendations that we made uh, as a result of our um, court, uh, one of the principal ones was to your, your question about culture, probably one of the most significant factors uh, that will impact how uh, people are, are uh, treated in their workplace, whatever their workplace is, whatever work situation uh, is what the culture is. And, and there are a lot of things that, you know, the leadership of organizations and certainly individual employees can do to uh, impact that culture. But uh, certainly being aware that of the potential for a workplace situation to have some harassing behavior uh, is something 
something that leadership and organizations have to be aware of, but it all starts with uh, really what's the culture there. Well, now, in case uh, anybody's been asleep for the last 30 years and doesn't get sexual harassment, we have two types, hostile work <laughs> environment, which is a pattern, and we have quid pro quo, this for that in exchange. But when you break it down further, and I know this from my own personal experience working in corporate security, sexual harassment is really a personal safety issue, isn't it? Yes. So, you know, that's a, that's a interesting that you say it that way because it's um, it's a matter of how the law developed that we think of sexual harassment as something that is covered under the discrimination laws. And as a legal matter, you know, that's correct. But certainly, you know, among the things uh, and our, uh, that we were certainly made aware of through the experts who uh, testified in front of our uh, harassment task force, but also just in terms of the kinds of cases that we see at the EEOC, it is a safety issue. It is very much a safety issue. So as you pointed out, you know, legally, people sort of think, okay, well, there are these two types of harassment, the quid pro quo, and then a hostile environment, hostile work environment. Well, hostile work environment can, you know, there's legal sta- there's a legal standard that applies to that if someone wants to actually uh, bring a case. But as we pointed out in our report, you have to think of harassment, it's really sort of on a continuum everything from the sexual put down all the way to the sexual assault. That's a pretty big range. Uh, There's a lot of things that can happen there in between. And certainly on the far range, uh, as you point out, particularly if you're getting into issues related to assault or actual assaults, it's very much a safety issue. When I was researching this, I kind of had an aha moment. In my corporate career, working for two studios and two guard companies over 20 years, Probably 50% of the investigation I, investigations I did were sexual harassment cases. And interestingly, I was called upon to do those investigations in the safety and security department. So since security professionals are trained to identify risk, you know, how, can, how can security professionals take it, an active role in this, in, in reporting and preventing sexual harassment in the workplace? We, we're kind of in a unique position as security professionals to help change this culture, aren't we? Yes, very much so, and uh, which is one of the reasons I appreciate your organization doing this, putting some attention on it. First of all, I'm not surprised that you, uh, you know, in the course of your career had to do, you know, up to 50% of them involved some type of sexual harassment. I mean, the, the I think one of the most important things for security professionals is to recognize, right, the awareness that the security professionals have of the work environment. What you all know better than anyone is where it is people go to do their work. And so, you know, this is one of the things I've stressed over and over again uh, since uh, 2016 when we issued our report and then 2017 when we have the real uh, rise of the Me Too movement. You know, you you have to pay attention to where do your employees go to work? Uh, and an organization, right, a big organization can have multiple uh, different types of workplaces. And depending upon um, where people are working, uh, that can influence the risk. Uh, so, uh, you know, do you have women who are isolated where they may have, you know, their direct report uh, may be a man and sexual harassment certainly uh, is not just uh, male on female, and we've seen lots of cases of same-sex harassment at the EOC, but um, <clears throat> the security professionals know the work environment and uh, can certainly uh, play a big role in making sure that the management of the organization and the leadership, and quite frankly, even the lawyers 
uh, who, you know, you would hope would be uh, pretty attuned to uh, what the risk factors are, really knowing where people are working makes a big difference and what are the circumstances uh, they find themselves in at every point of the day or night when they are doing their job. I found this part of your task force finding very interesting. Anywhere from 25 to 85% of the women report having experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. Not surprising, based on my experience. But the percentages varied due to how the questions about harassment at work are worded. That's really interesting. So if I have a sexual harassment policy and I define sexual harassment equals ABC, I'm going to have a different outcome if I just make it a generic policy about harassment. Explain that for us. Right. So that's a part of what I was saying about if you think about harassment is on a continuum, right? So oftentimes, if, if you ask just this generic question, uh, well, have you ever been sexually harassed at work? You know, you might get 25% of people who say yes, quarter of the uh, people will raise their hands. Uh, but then when you ask the question of, well, how many of you have experienced uh, some type of uh, sexual put down at work? Then you get 75% of the people, if not more, uh, particularly the women, right, raising their hands. So um, prior to 2017, right, because the awareness on this topic, right, has just so increased so exponentially going on three years now. So, but but that sort of, that explains the difference. So, you know, just a flat out general question about sexual harassment. Now, you know, the, when we published uh our task force report in 2016, we were using every study and every piece of data that we could find at that time. I haven't seen anything recently, but it would be curious, right, if you ask that question now, right, how many people think they've been sexually harassed at work? Uh, if um, You'd probably still find that range, I think, but, you know, I wonder if more people would uh, certainly have not just have the awareness about harassment, but might be thinking to themselves, yes, and as a matter of fact, I feel like I have been, where that whereas, you know, even three, four years ago they might not have. When you when you did your survey, did you find any corresponding data that indicated if I have uh, high appearances of sexual harassment in my organization, let's use a studio for example, because they're they're kind of a good example of that. Uh, am I going to find corresponding cases of protected class harassment as well? Well, um, so one thing I want to be clear about. Um, so the when we did our uh, task force report, we were looking for and relying on surveys and data and everything that we could find that others had done. So we, the EOC itself did not do any kind of direct survey. Um, we were looking for, you know, every, like I said, every study that we could find. And our uh, concern about harassment from the EEOC perspective, and the, you know, so we enforce the federal anti-discrimination laws, uh, was not exclusively about sexual harassment, uh, as you might imagine, uh, and certainly from a safety standpoint, you know, we see some uh, pretty ugly racial harassment uh, situations. That probably is the um, next highest based form of hostile work environment uh, case that we see. But most of uh, the research that is available, and at least certainly that had been available up until uh, 2016 when we were doing our work, uh, was really primarily about sexual harassment. But you are the, 
the question you ask is the right one, which is, you know, for a safety perspective, people have to be aware of how people are treated overall. You know, people can certainly experience the same kinds of uh, hostile work environments for on other bases, and race is uh, is pre- predominantly one of them. Well, it goes back to your point. If the culture itself is allowing one form of harassment, it's probably not doing a better job on the other form of harassment, right? It's it's a uh, it's it's the right. Tone. That's exactly yeah. right. Very right. interesting. And what's a, and and sort of what the what the management allows, right? I mean, sort of what the leadership. I mean, that's you know we put a big. Uh, emphasis on uh, in terms of correcting for and preventing harassment, that it really is about how is the leadership not both setting the tone, but, uh, you know, taking the actions to hold people accountable. They're the ones who are really responsible for the culture of the workplace. Well, that's an interesting comment. So let's say we have a valued employee in an organization that makes a company millions and millions of dollars every day. Uh, a lot of times, in my experience, uh, you know, management kind of looks the other way. So when you have your corporate culture leaders engaged in this activity, how the heck are you going to change that culture? I mean, that that's that's the big challenge, right? Well, that's a huge challenge in in many places, and um, so that was something uh, that we, uh, in our uh, study and report, called out, and we called it out as what we called the superstar harasser. And uh, so, and what me, what we mean by the superstar harasser is exactly what you said, someone who's the highly valued employee. Now that doesn't necessarily always translate to someone who is a senior executive. And so let's be, you know, clear about that. So in terms of like the superstar harasser, I mean, it could be, that's somebody who, and um, look, the Harvey Weinstein case was an example of this, right? Who brings in all the money and uh, gets all the accounts. It's the professor who gets all the grant money. Uh, It's the, uh, you know, in medical settings, right? uh, We had lots of, we had some testimony in front of our task force about, you know, it's the surgeon who's considered, right, the real sort of uh, in the hierarchy, top of the heap. But the highly valued employees can also be, uh, you know, someone who is a manager who is very good. Most workplaces, right? So someone who's very good at his or her job, uh, you know, most often in certainly in sexual harassment cases, uh, it will be he, but not always, like I said, but someone who's good at, let's say someone who's really good at his job, and maybe there's some undercurrent of, or some people are aware of some, you know, things going on with that person. They don't get reported, but the management has reason to know about it. And they're not taking any action because even that employee is highly valued, right? He really gets the job done. And so removing someone or taking some uh, disciplinary action or uh, even doing an investigation like you talked about becomes uh, something that people avoid for a long time. Now, I do want to say, though, you know, certainly and, uh, you know, with the rise of the Me Too movement, I think the single biggest change uh, in terms of companies and cultures and owning their cultures has been a recognition of, oh, wait a minute, Uh, these are situations that we cannot and should not tolerate. And if they have some undercurrent of uh, knowing what's going on or some rumblings about it, uh, I do think uh, there's been a sea change in 
companies and employers being much more willing to look into it and to uh, take some action. Well, I think the numbers support that. 2018, there was a 50% increase in harassment suits over 2017. EEOC saw a 13.6% increase in the number of sexual harassment charges involved, over 18, and it recovered $7 million in 2018 as opposed to $47 million in 2017. So I think this Me Too, you know, actually had something to do with it for sure. Because as we talked about earlier, when you're redefining what this means, people say, wait a minute, that does include me. And I think this is—I think this is a positive effect. Well, and if people are willing, to, much more willing to speak up, the EEOC numbers, right? Keep in mind that someone coming to the EEOC and filing a charge with the EEOC—that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Because that's, uh, you know, that's a whole different level of someone speaking up that they uh, feel like, uh, you know, in whatever their work situation. But if it's they're in a situation where they have been harassed or they are being harassed, uh, that they are willing to file a charge with the federal government. If you talk to uh, people in the human resources profession and what they have seen uh, in terms of the last couple of years, in terms of people reporting internally. So this gets to your earlier uh, comment about your experience uh, in your working for different companies and how many uh, investigations, internal investigations that you were called upon to do. And uh, you talk to anybody in the human resources or employment law world, and they will tell you that they have experienced a huge increase in internal reporting and then consequently internal investigation. Yeah, I think this is, I think it's way underreported. Your point, if, yes. I get, if I get to the EEOC door, I'm at the extreme level of reporting. It takes a lot. And by the way, I've, I've reported something to EEOC in my police career way back in the day. Very pleasant experience, by the way. Very professional. But that took me a lot of thinking and, and consideration to go that far. Let's talk about some risk factors involved in the, in the various company cultures. Every company does have its own culture, and that can really affect the way people perceive what harassment is, and perceive whether they should do something about it. We published a whole list of risk factors as part of our task force report. And by the way, I should mention that our task force report is available on the EEOC's website. You know, hope people will take a look at it and uh, and therefore uh, uh, easy uh, access. Any one risk factor. So, for example, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about, for, just to use as an example, is uh, workplaces that have a lot of young workers. You know, we see lots of cases within the EEOC in the restaurant industry, for example, uh, because they tend to have a lot of work, young workers. Uh, there tends to be a lot of turnover. Uh, you may not have people who are particularly senior uh, in terms of management. These may be, you know, first jobs for many people. And so, you know, they don't know sort of what the norms are or what the behaviors are uh, supposed to be. Uh, if you have workplaces that have a lot of repetition in terms of the work, and I recall one of the experts testifying in front of our task force at the time and say, saying that, you know, boredom uh, or, you know, a lot of repetition in terms of what people do in their work can lead to, right, people, uh, what starts off as horseplay or a prank, uh, then can, you know, you're, you're already then on a slippery slope of what's uh, potentially becoming harassing for someone else in the workplace. We talked about, you know, the high value employees and that, but that also uh, talks about or implicates where there are individuals in the workplace who, where there are real 
significant power disparities. And so someone who, you know, is absolutely the um, head of the uh, organization and who if, if people are afraid to challenge that person. And again, that also goes to, uh, you know, someone who manages people uh, and who, uh, you know, is absolutely in control of and has the real power in a workplace. And, you know, that there is anywhere there is power, there is a potential for people, others to be vulnerable. You know, there's also, uh, we talked about workplaces that rely on uh, customer satisfaction, right? Because keep in mind, of course, employees can be harassed, not just by fellow employees, but by customers. And that's also uh, something that management has had to pay attention to and uh, safety professionals pay attention to uh, as well. But all of these things, all of the kinds of risk factors are things that uh, certainly that um, safety professionals should be aware of. And, and uh, as we talked earlier, I think can be aware of in ways that really benefit the leadership in organizations who are want to make sure that their employees are able to do their jobs and not have to work in any kind of uh, hostile environment. Well, these are really interesting points. And when you speak to the, to the young population, when I started my career, uh, the Snap-on Tools calendar was problematic, <laughs> right? Instagram's got nothing on that. I mean, Instagram is uh, practically soft pornography nowadays. And if you have some person on their phone in the workplace using some of these sites, right? That changes the whole right. dynamic of, of the culture in the workplace because they're going to say, it's my phone, it's my business. Really, not really, though, right. because well, it's I, still in the workplace. Yes, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's a really uh, important point to make and complicating factor, right? Certainly for the safety world, right? But exactly what you said. And we, you know, talked about that in the introduction to our task force report was, you know, look, you know, a, a few swipes on someone's phone and who knows what it is that they're showing to someone else that they may think is funny, but the person who is being asked to look at it doesn't think it's funny. And, you know, when those things, you know, it's it's one thing if it's just sort of an isolated event, but when those things start to pile up and accumulate, and then uh, you can, again, you're on a slippery slope of what can end up being uh, harassment or certainly viewed as harassment by an employee. Hopefully nowadays, companies are waking up the financial benefit of dealing with this, soft dollar expenses, you know, right. such as decreased workplace and performance. I mean, this this all hits the bottom line. And, and this is really important for us to, to focus on that. Give us some ideas on how we can change the culture. You know, what are some some processes we can use, such as uh, climate surveys, devoting resources, that sort of thing. Right. So, um, and actually the, the point that you make, uh, Chuck, is really an important one. And so first of all, right, it is a bottom line issue for uh, companies, right? So, I mean, first of all, we would hope, and I certainly hope as a commissioner at the EOC that people care about their workplaces and uh, don't want people to uh, experience harassment in their workplaces or any kind of uh, denigrating behavior based on uh, their protected class. But it does become a, a productivity issue. And so, you know, one way to be aware of, well, is there a problem here? Or is this something that we should look at is looking at all of your productivity metrics, right? Those include things like absenteeism, you know, even on an individual level. So, you know, one of the things I say all the time is, look, employers have to own their workplaces down to the individual work site. 
And so if suddenly Mary is suddenly having more, a lot more absences from the workplace, you're not really sure why, or, you know, you're getting requests that someone doesn't want to work with someone else. I mean, these are things that, you know, sort of basic common sense uh, that employers should be paying attention to and looking into. You know, that's one of the things in particular uh, when I think about sort of uh, absenteeism rates, which is that's a longstanding and uh, issue for employers, but I certainly hope over the last, with all the attention on the harassment issue over the last couple of years, that employers will be more attuned to what might be behind that. Is there something there that uh, we need to pay attention to? And again, this is sort of looking at their culture broadly, right? But uh, and then other other things that employers can do. So, you know, it's important to have a baseline and understand, uh, you know, what do your employees think about where they're working and uh, the conditions under which they're working. So uh, you can do a climate survey and that gives you a, a good baseline. There is no safety in not having reports of harassment. So let's say you've gone for the last year and you think, you know, hey, we haven't had any harassment reports or you know, again, back to your background, no one's been asked to do, we haven't had to do any internal investigations. Well, that doesn't really, what does that tell you? That tells you only that you haven't had to do any internal investigations. Uh, it doesn't really tell you much of an assessment of your culture. It's certainly, you know, something to look at. But, you know, again, you have, you know, be mindful of the fact that so few people are willing to report it, right? So our uh, report, talked about how 75% of the people who experience harassment do not report it. And they do not report it because they're afraid to. Uh, they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of, you know, what might happen to the job that they're doing. That's something to uh, pay attention to. Training, of course, is always something uh, that's uh, important. One of the things that we were very critical of in our uh, report, and this was a highly unusual thing, but we were pretty critical of a lot of harassment, anti-harassment training that had been taking place over the last uh, 30 years, again, sort of uh, when the kind of cottage industry of workplace training really developed because of the Supreme Court uh, cases, because it was all very, and it has been all very focused on legal compliance, not as much about, um, well, how do you prevent this stuff in the first place? And how do you know how do you create a culture where uh, it's not going to happen? Among the things that we suggested in terms of training, and you know, we really sort of called for a rebooting of a lot of uh, workplace training. Uh, we suggested that look, you there ought to be some uh, sense of general civility in workplaces, and uh, what does that mean? And then uh, also bystander intervention, which was something that uh, we suggested, look, we don't know if this works for workplaces. Uh, we readily admitted that we were borrowing the concept from a lot of the work that has gone on and study that has gone on over the past, certainly uh, seven years or so about sexual assault on college campuses. And so there'd been a lot of attention about bystander intervention there. That was something that then we suggested listen, maybe this ought to be incorporated into workplace training. And I certainly get, uh, you know, see lots of uh, training modules developed by various organizations. We at the EOC developed an entirely new curriculum for our trainers called Respectful Workplaces. And uh, so we incorporated aspects of both civility, bystander intervention. 
one thing I want to say about training in particular, and uh, especially for those who you know have influence over the safety of people at work, if you train no one else in your workplace, train the first line supervisors. That was something that we really called attention to because they are the ones, right, who if there is something wrong or uh, potentially going wrong, they're the ones who are going to see it. They're the ones who, or they certainly should be aware of it. Um, they're the ones who someone is going to come to about it or make a comment about, and they need to know what to do when someone complains to them. Or if someone just makes, you know, some offhand remark, look, I'm sick and tired of the way, you know, Chuck keeps, you know, saying this stuff to me. Well, if a, a first line supervisor has heard that, that's not something that he or she should just brush off. They need to know how to respond to that. And so uh, really, uh, you know, training the first line supervisors, I think, is pretty critical. People want to know, you know, well, what is it, you know, that legally is sexually, you know, constitutes sexual harassment? Again, back to where we started, I think the opportunity for uh, safety professionals who really know their workplaces to be involved in those discussions within the management of an organization uh, is really critical and can make a big difference. Well, I agree. Oftentimes, the security officer, security professional is the first contact the public has with a company or, or culture, and they set the tone right there. I have nine sisters, and I will tell you that every one of them has experienced this, not once, but sometimes twice over the years. It's an actual real problem. I've worked personally with the EEOC as a complainant and uh, as an employer on the other side of it, and I will say it's an extremely professional organization, and I would really encourage anybody listening to take up, if you have a serious complaint and, and you want to do something about it, I would encourage people to contact uh, Commissioner Lipnick's organization because they really will handle this in a very professional manner. Well, and I, I appreciate the endorsement of the work of the EOC. And I, I want to say, you know, this has been something that the topic itself is something I've been concerned about for years. And we put a lot of attention on it at the EOC over the past number of years, even before, uh, you know, the Me Too movement arose. I mean, we had put our uh, done our work and had our task force report out there in 2016. And, you know, when uh, in October of 2017, which is really sort of the real rise of the Me Too movement with uh, the reporting by the New York Times and the New Yorker. And, you know, it's interesting now, here we are in uh, 2020. And just in the last month, right, we've seen a lot of the fallout, even more so, right, of uh, many of the kind of high profile uh, Me Too cases. And what I really hope is that uh, people don't think that this is sort of a one and done kind of thing, uh, that, oh, well, okay, that harassment thing we were talking about over the last couple of years, we're you know, we've, we're, we all, we're kind of concluded on that. And that's where both, you know, certainly the work of the EOC, but the people who are on the front lines, which are all of the people who are your professionals in organizations. Uh, again, I can't underscore how much of a difference uh, you guys can make on this issue. You know, it's ironic. Uh, I teach uh, and lecture on workplace violence. One of the components of workplace violence is uh -huh. maybe up to 30% of workplace violence uh, incident involves domestic violence, and we're getting very yeah. good in our comp in our uh, security industry of identifying domestic violence and people coming forward in the company culture and not being ashamed of domestic violence. But you know we're not there yet with the sexual harassment side of it. And I think if I look at it from that perspective, 
I think we should be, and we can get there. And change it for if we yeah. can change it for domestic violence. I think we certainly can change the culture for sexual harassment quite easily yeah. using the same techniques. Yes, and you raise up one really important point too, and this is something that you know we've. Um, it's been a bit of an evolution, even in terms of uh, at the ESC and how we approach things for our investigators, right? Because our investigators, once someone files a charge of discrimination, then uh, we do the, do an invest workplace investigation. But uh, one of the things that we we've certainly realized through the course of our work on the harassment task force and uh, lots of discussion that I've had with our EEOC professionals across the country, both attorneys and investigators, is the awareness that people have to have of how people who have experienced some type of either, like you're talking about domestic violence, but potentially some sexual assault in their background and how um, reluctant, right, they may be to come forward because of that if they are now experiencing something in their workplace and, and the sensitivity that interviewers and investigators uh, have to have to that and that, uh, you know, people will uh, react differently, but that just to be aware that that may be in someone's background and uh, it's something that, you know, someone who are asking questions and uh, trying to get to the bottom of, well, what's happening here has to have a lot of sensitivity to. And that's something that we've put some focus on and uh, incorporated into uh, some of our training now for investigators. And, you know, uh, certainly in the safety industry, that's something that's that's sort of another building block, like you were saying about, you know, people having had awareness, much more sensitivity now to domestic violence and how that can carry over into workplaces, but also sort of that sensitivity to, you know, people might have experienced something in their background that is now really impacting uh, their willingness to uh, talk about a situation in their workplace. EEOC Commissioner Victoria Lipnick, fascinating conversation. We could speak for hours on this topic. I am so pleased that you came on the show and I'm so happy that you can really tie this together for the security industry because we can play such an important role in this and really help help improve the workplaces uh, in this situation. I'm very honored to speak with you and uh, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thanks very much for having me.